Well, if Jesus makes it clearer, it's quite obvious that what we must do is always read the Old Testament with New Testament eyes. Um, My old college principal used to say, look for Jesus on every page of the Old Testament. And of course, when Jesus was speaking to the two on the road to Emmaus, for example, he actually explained what the Old Testament said concerning himself. He also said in another situation, Moses wrote about me. And Paul reminds us that everything that was written in the past is written to teach us, to encourage us, and to give us hope. So what we must never do is read any passage, uh, for example, Daniel 5, in isolation. Would you bear with me while I make an initial comment about judgment, because the heading that we've been given is Judgment Day. Now there's a majority view, I think, when we speak with people, whether they're Christians or not, that we do live in some sort of a moral universe, and that there must be accountability, we must be answerable, Evil dictators like Hitler or Stalin or many others, they just can't get away with it. The oppressors of the poor, the abusers of children and the weak, they must be answerable. I expect you've found that if you've spoken with people as you're seeking to perhaps talk about Christianity to them. That is a sort of, almost a gut reaction with many people today. And generally this accountability is projected to after death. May he rot in hell, we hear people say. The Bible agrees. There is a judgment day at the end of time. He will, says the psalmist, judge the world in righteousness. And this will take place, says Paul, on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ. So again we see Jesus is the key. Now whilst many folk may project judgment always to after death, I'm sure we need to remember that there is a past, a present and a future regarding judgment as there is of Jesus. Richard reminded us, he is the same yesterday, today and forever. He gave himself in that costly way on the cross and the past. Uh, He lives today in us by his spirit if we're Christians and one day he's going to return in glory. There's the crisis of the past, the process of the present and the climax of the future. And that is the way the Bible talks about salvation too, isn't it? When we come into a relationship with Jesus, it says, and many of you know this, we were saved. But if we stand here today, or sit here today, and say, yes, by God's grace I'm saved, uh, isn't there something else? I seem to make lots of mistakes, I know I'm a sinner, I know other people are sinners, there's got to be more, and so there's the process, we are being saved. And one day, when Jesus comes again, we will be saved. There is that past, present and future that always clicks together in the Bible for us. And Jesus is now in the process of making us 
holy. That's why we have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Scriptures. Well, bear with me on that. Let's get on to the passage that is put before us. Jesus is the key. A day in the life of Belshazzar starts with a party, ends with his death. And I wonder from verses uh, 1 to 9, if you've got your Bibles open, it'd be helpful if you did, if we could just for a moment look at the parallels with society today. Now, we can't sort of bring everybody under the same uh, condemnation or say that's everybody's lifestyle, but there's lots of things, I think, in these first nine verses which show us the sort of things that people have always done and always been. There's, first of all, I think, this great big feast is a lot of hype, isn't it? And isn't there a lot of hype today? I see, I see it, I'm sure you know, on some of the programmes, you get these celebrity magazines. I, I'm a daughter, I see, seems to have them. I think, you know, I look at them sometimes. What a load of rubbish. It's hype. And, you know, why, do people, why does he have a thousand people? I know it was the pattern for the day. But, you know, why do we have massive feasts and massive banquets even today? There's something that has to say, look at me, I've given this big party. Wasteful and prosperous. I have been to one uh, seven-course dinner when I was in business. And you know, I felt guilty. I remember that. It was years and years ago. I thought, how can it be right to have seven courses when the world is as it is? Now that's me to say, well, you're just a strange old man. I like a seven-course dinner, but be that as it may. But there's something about this, isn't there? The rich area that we live in and the poor areas of the world, there's something that really, well, it upsets me, if I'm honest. Maybe it does you, maybe it doesn't. But there's an implication in these first four verses of a life of excess, a life of frivolity. There's an attitude of pride. Look what I've done. Look at this party that I've set up. Self-contentment, smug satisfaction. Live for the day. Life is meaningless, says Ecclesiastes. There's nothing better than to eat, drink and be merry. What about religion? Well, Immediately we see they're talking about gods, plural. This plurality of gods, well, you take your choice. And I rather liked uh, when Graham was preaching, he said, um, if you say to someone, Jesus love you, loves you, they might say, oh, that's nice. You know, that's your thing. Oh, isn't that nice? And it seems today it's just the same, isn't it? the different things that people have as the priority in their lives. Take your choice. And Belshazzar was undoubtedly one who was sacrilegious, who denigrated the the sacred as he took again these uh, vessels that had been brought by his father uh, from uh, the temple in Jerusalem. A profane attitude to life. And then verse 5, God's shock tactic. He's zapped. 
unexpected, unexplainable, Belshazzar had lost control. Have you seen that in people's lives? Have you experienced that? Everything going along so well, then all of a sudden, bang. I've seen it in people who don't profess to be Christians, perhaps in a bereavement in the family. Everything is turned on its head. What really matters? I wish I'd spent more time with my children. I wish I'd done this. I wish I'd done that. And Belshazzar is flattened by God's shock tactic. And the result is fear. Now is there, no, is there no parallel there with modern day life? When you get under the skin of many people, the fear of the unknown, looking for answers, and where does he first of all look for his answers? With the occult. It's been said before that more priests, there are more occultists than priests in France. I don't know whether that's true, but I quote what others have said and they seem to have a statistic. Today, all the pages given over in our national papers to having your fortune told, what's going to happen to you today? We hear of presidents of the United States going to their, whatever it was, their guide, who's going to tell them about the future. Because there's a fear of the unknown. We want the answers. And Belshazzar turns to the occult practitioners, which, let it be said, is absolutely forbidden in the Bible. I think the first reference that forbids it is in Exodus, and it goes right through to Revelation, when those who are involved with occult practices will not be in God's eternal kingdom unless there is repentance. And then he thinks, well, I can buy my way out of this. Let's get hold of Daniel, whoever, or whoever can answer this. There's a huge reward. I'll make him the third in the kingdom. But all his occultists cannot answer his dilemma and his problem. And he's filled with that sense of failure and confusion. And verse 9, despair. Even more terrified. Even more pale. Baffled. And for many today, um, certain lifestyles can go in that sort of circle. We're trying to work the way out of it, getting some sort of answer, but it all falls apart, then you start again. And Belshazzar was a king of a dying empire. And we've looked, and I leave you to look, because there's so much there for any other parallels that there are with society that will help us as Christians. Then verses 10 to 28. Then along comes Daniel. Now I don't want to preempt Ken next week, but chapter 6 verse 20 describes him as the servant of the living God. 
So let's look at some ways how we can engage with society today. Verses 10 to 14. Along comes the Queen and says what a marvellous chap Daniel is and his reputation has gone before him and sometimes, you know, we need to just perhaps concentrate on this a bit more in our own lives. The opportunity that comes through reputation is very, very important. You know, the old saying, you've got to earn the right to talk to people. But he was called for. We need to work on that, friends. How we behave at work. How we behave in the family. So that we have a reputation wherever we are. That people might say, ah, he's the man, she's the woman who can help me in this. And I'm sure you've had experience of that. And then in verse 12 it says, call for Daniel. There's something special about this man, they say. He's got the spirit, quotes of the holy gods in him. In New Testament terms, of course, he was showing the fruits of the Spirit. He's the servant of the living God. Verses 15 and 16. And verse 11 actually says, There is a man. So they were looking to a man for answers. But we were reminded in chapter 2 that when, God, uh, when Daniel was in a similar situation, his reply was, there is a God in heaven. There's a lesson for you and I. We don't take anything to ourselves if people come to us uh, and ask for some help. We point them to God, not to ourselves. There is a man, verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 28, Daniel's reply always will be, there's a God in heaven. He's the one, he's the one, not me. So then, then uh, Belshazzar says, um, verse 16, Right then, Daniel, if you can. Verse 16 there. I will give you this marvellous reward that I would offer before. The third highest in the kingdom. It reminded me very much in a way of um, Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus was in the desert when Satan said to him if you will bow down and worship me I will give you all these kingdoms of the world. The temptation of a reward Jesus' answer, of course, was away from me. It's written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. If you can, Daniel declines any reward in verse 17. He is not motivated by world value systems. But he offers to explain the writing. Verse 18 following. And I think it's worth noting, at least it was for me when I was studying it, verse verse 5 talks about the writing was by a human hand. But the explanation is by divine inspiration. God gives Daniel the answer. And that's the book we have before us. Yes, written 
by human hand, printed by skilled people, but unless the Holy Spirit makes it inspired to us as he inspired the writing, then it will be empty. Much the same as the man in Acts chapter 8, whom Philip saw reading from the book of Isaiah. Do you understand what you're reading? How can I, unless someone explains it? Much the same. And he preached to him Jesus from Isaiah. So Daniel gets underway. First, he says, learn from Nebuchadnezzar, your father. It's a lesson for us, I think, friends. We need to connect the present with the past to prepare for the future. We're not just here today. What we are, to know the, you need to know the child, to know the man, they say, don't they? What's happened in the past affects us what we are today. We need to learn from it in every situation of life. I heard the past described over the radio just a, a few days ago as a dimension we live in. Not entirely. We live in the present and we're preparing for the future. But first he says, look, now learn what happened to your father. But you haven't. Verse 22. But you, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself. You knew all that happened to Nebuchadnezzar. How he was brought to the lowest of the low, but he humbled himself and God reinstated him. But instead of that, Belshazzar, you set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. That's what you've done. You've opposed him. You've profaned his temple. You've praised worthless idols and replaced him for those idols. You've failed to recognise that he holds your very life and all your ways in his hands. The very opposite of your father. Therefore, you are rejected because of your pride and because of your conflict with God. Your reign is ended. This is verses 24 to 28. You're a personal failure. Your kingdom is divided. And whatever all this means, this uh, Aramaic here, which presumably the king could read, but he didn't understand, it, the same judgment would face us, wouldn't it? Days numbered. Our personalities, our actions, our thoughts, our intentions are weighed. And without the salvation of Jesus, all the, the kingdom we set up for ourselves is divided. Verses 29 and 30 show the two responses of Belshazzar and Daniel. 
Now, I don't know about you, um, I find 29, verse 29, a rather strange reaction. It's almost as though, by honouring Daniel, Belshazzar felt he was following his father's footsteps and would have his father's benefits. His father who had acknowledged God's sovereignty, who'd renounced his sins, and had accepted God's providence, but not so Belshazzar. But what happened then between verse 28 and 29? He's had a right shocking message, and he thinks, oh, that was bad, I'll reward this chap. I haven't got the answer on that, and I just wonder, you know, whether we're reading between, but a lot could be written between 28 and 29. We were always told God has no grandchildren. He only has children, those who personally. My parents do not save me, however godly they are, although they will pray for me and long for me. I long for my children to all come to Christ. God has no grandchildren. Well, that's a little bit strange, the way he, he has reacted. But perhaps he thought that he would be carried forward on the wave of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, uh, reinstatement. But Daniel, this is a bit strange too, isn't it? Having re- refused, in verse 17, the reward, he now accepts it. And I wonder, and I just offer it as a possible answer, whether he accepts the honour, he accepts the reward so that he can serve God in the future in a place of influence, as we shall perhaps see with Ken next week. And then the final verse, verse 30. Belshazzar, the king, was slain. By whom? I don't know. But that very night, he lost his life. That was the end of Belshazzar. It was also the end of the Babylonian Empire which was divided and passed on to others. Let me just draw a few things uh, together as we conclude. I'd like to think, as we've studied this, how can it apply to the Christian message represented by Daniel and the dying world represented by Belshazzar. I think, firstly, it does help us when we've seen the sort of lifestyle there was, it does help us to understand the problem a little bit. Because we're part of it. Secondly, like Daniel too, we, we know the solution. 
We haven't got all the answers. But we do have living in us, if we're Christians, the spirit of truth who teaches us and guides us. A recommended daily prayer is from Psalm 119. Lord, I am your servant. Give me discernment. Use me, Lord. May I share a personal incident? I received an email just a few few days ago. Reminded me of when I preached in Reading in 1976. I can't tell you what the sermon was about, but I remember the incident. Apparently, at some stage, I said, the danger of living a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde life. And the lady in that congregation, by those words, was convicted. The next day, she became a Christian. I learnt this week, or this last week, in the email, that for 12 years, her husband told me, because the lady had since died, she was living a life of deceit. Deceiving him for 12 years. I don't know the details. But I'd like to say two things. When they told me about this incident at the time, I remember looking through my notes. There was nothing about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It was something that just came. And I thought, that that is actually good, isn't it? Because it keeps us humble. All we can be is servants for God. In a way he doesn't need us, and in another way he does. But we needn't think for a moment that we're clever, that we've done something, that we personally, in in our own strength, have contributed to anyone's salvation. But I also remember secondly about that that incident that not very long afterwards this lady uh, had an acute form of cancer and uh, I visited her on her deathbed and I can see her face now there was a wonderful sense of peace it was brilliant And that has stayed with me. I thought, how wonderful you are, Lord. How you can just use anything to bring people to yourself. We are just the vessels for you to use. Lord, I am your servant. Give me discernment. Use me. I think the passage then does help us to understand the problem because we're part of it. And we are part of the solution. 
when God uses us. And when I was at Sunday school, and some of you who are around about my age will remember the sort of song we used to sing, Dare to be a Daniel, Dare to stand alone, Dare to have a purpose firm, Dare to make it known. That's a message for you and I. A courageous response to the world as it is. We do sometimes have to stand alone. It's not easy, is it? You've experienced it. I've experienced it. At work, I've experienced it in the forces. Uh, and you know, in many, many places we can feel so alone. In the family. But we have to dare to stand alone. And we have to dare to have a purpose firm, not waffle about. And sometimes the hardest part is to dare to make it known. A courageous response because we will all, Christian and non-Christian alike, stand before God's judgment seat. And each will give an answer of himself, herself to God. So being a Christian is not an optional extra. It's not an accessory that enhances our life. It's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of holy joy or regretted loss.